Welcome to the Fastest Five Minutes, presented by Kroll and Mooring. We are your co-hosts for this edition, Peter Ayer and Sky Matheson, bringing you a bi-weekly summary of significant government contracts, legal and regulatory developments that no government contracts lawyer or executive should be without. And this is a special edition we're bringing you today. It's focused on two recent opinions from the Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals. These opinions focus on requests for recovery for increased cost caused by government-imposed base restrictions in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And I've asked my colleague, Sky Matheson, to join the podcast today to help our listeners understand these decisions and the implications for contractors. There's a lot here, so we're going to get started. Sky, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining. Can you start by setting the scene for us and talking about the relevance and importance of these decisions to contractors? Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. So setting the scene first, I think it's a good place to start. The Sovereign Acts Doctrine, there's a lot to unpack in, in what it is, and then we'll get to the new cases and really understand why the courts came out the way they did. In a nutshell, the rule can be summed up as follows. The United States, as a contracting party, will not be held responsible for the lay costs incurred by a contractor caused by certain acts of the United States when it's operating in a sovereign capacity, in the government capacity, i.e. legislating, regulating, rulemaking, or Peter, I think as you teed up perfectly in these cases, even when a base commander just makes a memorandum, a decision that is applicable. There's, there's certain situations where the sovereign act of the government is distinct. There's two hats between the government as a sovereign and government as a contracting party where this, the act of one side relieves the other side. It's a legal defense that's potentially available on all government contracts. And it was created to address the really tricky situation where what happens when the contracting officer, through no real fault of the contracting officer's own, uh, finds themselves having to abide by big government rules, rulemaking, regulations, um, and now there's costs that are being incurred. And really the question, the key question is, who, which party, the contractor or the government, is responsible for those costs? And that requires us to then dig into the facts and legal tests of what, what do the courts look at? So that's really why it's important. I, I think to set the scene just a little bit, you know, we, we want to talk about why it matters now. Then we'll get into the purpose. Why do we have this rule? You know, in what circumstances does it potentially apply? And then what the legal test is. But why does it matter now? People are tuning into the podcast. Why should, why should we care? So we know COVID, March 2020, and it's still, you know, we're still experiencing the tail of it. But during those first couple of years, the quarantines that were set up by different states, the quarantines that were set up on different government facilities, the self-quarantining that contractors undertook um, in order to try to prevent the spread of COVID, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes in response to what they thought the government contracting officer wanted, and sometimes in response to government contracting officer directions. We all experienced this um, for the past couple of years, and COVID and those quarantine restrictions imposed real problems on a lot of contractors. There was restricted access to government or contractor facilities. There's quarantine periods. I mean, we don't have those anymore, but if we think back to the first year or two of the pandemic, states imposed mandatory 14-day waiting periods. Uh, for anyone traveling out of state. If you're a contractor on a contract that's sending you around the state or your employees around the state, uh, around the country, now all of a sudden you're, you're, you're having unproductive time, weeks and weeks of unproductive time where these employees, you're paying their wages, you're paying their salaries, and they're sitting in hotels 
quarantining. That has a real impact on the contractor. And then that, again, the question gets asked to us um, all the time and is now being sorted out by the courts is which party bears those risks. There's lots of inefficiencies. In addition to just salaries and wages, there's a lot of inefficiencies that arise from quarantine COVID restrictions. You know, there was an anticipated plan for performance that every contractor has going into a contract and having no more access to government facilities or blue and yellow teaming where only half your employees are now allowed to enter into work or none of your employees are deemed essential and no one can work. People are trying to get computers. There's a, there's a delay. There's an inefficiency to any workarounds, to any mitigation steps that go into effect. And some people can't mitigate. Some, if you're working in a skiff, you don't have the ability to do that. So a lot of our listeners probably either experience directly or, or have aspects of their company or, or, or the industry that have these problems. And these problems aren't unique just to COVID. These problems have been going back for almost 200 years in the case law, Peter. I mean, September 11th. The base shutdowns in response to September 11th, security concerns, we have case law coming out of that. The sequestration and government shutdowns, international embargoes, the world wars. The first cases out of the federal circuit's predecessor are actually sovereign act cases um, arising from the Civil War. So we have you know, hundreds of years of experience of what sovereign acts is and when it applies. Uh, and it's just neat to have it be applied in new situations and have the court shake out um, is it applicable? Is it not applicable? What facts make it applicable? And that's really what we're going to talk about today. The essential question, again, is which party, government or the contractor, bears the, the risk of absorbing these unforeseen costs? Normally, when the courts approach this, and we're going to dive into the act and the, the defense just you know right after this, but what's important is just in a general sense, set aside the sovereign acts doctrine. In a general sense, if you're trying to look at risk allocation, which party bears the risk of these costs? You look to the contract. The contract has clauses. The changes clause, the delay clause are the most common. Those say if an act or inaction of the government causes the contractor to you know, incur additional costs, then the government's responsible. If you don't have an act or inaction of the government that you, is not a constructive change, is not a delay, then the contractor on a firm fixed price would typically be responsible for that. So the courts typically look to the contract and figure out how the parties allocated the risk. The, the interesting and tricky situation here is the government has almost a schizophrenic uh, role here because it is both imposing the restriction and then saying it's not liable for the restriction being imposed. And that's why it's such an interesting doctrine and so tricky. And there's so much case law that really splits hairs in a lot of ways and leaves a lot of gray areas um, unanswered. So that's, that's kind of why it's topical, why it's applicable to our listeners now. The purpose, again, is, is really to answer that policy question, balancing the government's inherent freedom to legislate the government's inherent freedom to make rules, you gotta balance that with the government's equally important obligation to honor its contracts and its contract obligations. That's what the courts are trying to, to balance. The defense only potentially applies in the scenarios that we talked about and we're gonna talk about. Um, there has to be some US government action, some rule. It doesn't need to be a law, it could be a regulation, it could be some executive order, it could be a base commander at a base saying the base is closed. Some government action needs to have occurred, and the government needs to assert this defense. So, Scott, you said that the defense is potentially available on all contracts. Is it a clause? Can you explain a little bit um, what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good question. So it's, it's not a clause, um, but it is potentially available. And so what we mean by that is you're not going to see anything in your contract that talks about the sovereign acts in any way, shape, or form. But it's a court-made rule. 
So common law rule that the courts have stuck to for, you know, since the Civil War, that of course the government has this inherent sovereign right to make rules. And so the courts need to make sense of when is the government liable for those rules and when is the government not liable for those rules. And when I say government, the government is contracting capacity. So it's not a clause, but it is inherent in every contract. And what we mean by that is it's just like the implied duty of good faith and fair dealing. There's nothing that ever says it in a contract, but it is inherent in every contract. There's every situation you could potentially, if the facts allow it, you could potentially raise it. Same here. It's a defense that the government, if they think that there was a government rule that hampered or hindered the CEO's ability to kind of perform the way that things were supposed to be performed, they can raise it as a defense. Now, whether the government can win on that defense or not is going to come down to the specific facts. And that brings us to the legal test. And it's really, really important, Peter, that we talk about the legal test first so that we can make sense of why the courts in these two ASPCA decisions just ruled on COVID and, and why they ruled the way they did. Again, um, their, their rulings are generally consistent with the case law, but it makes a lot more sense if we know what the rules are. Um, there's two primary elements, two primary things um, that the government has the burden to prove, and then there's a few exceptions. Um, the first rule is that it, this is a government defense. So the government raises it, and the government has the obligation of establishing that these things exist. First, that the, that the rule that the, some other part of the government made in its sovereign capacity the rule was public in general with only incidental impact to the contract, to the contractor, okay? The second rule, and we're going to dive in a little bit more detail about what that means. The second rule is that the government's new rule, again, the government in its sovereign capacity, its new rule, the regulation, the law, the base commander's memo, whatever it is, that that new rule rendered the government's contract performance ability impossible. So again, the two hacks of the government in its contracting capacity, it had to abide by this other rule of the government, and thus it couldn't, its performance was impossible or impractical, as we're going to see as it's interpreted under the Federal Circuit case law. Um, that's, that's the main aspect there. First, what do we mean by the first prong? The rule has to be public and general. What does that mean, right? It means it has to be broadly applicable to most anyone and everyone. You can't have a rule by Congress that says, you know, Corporation A, uh, you know, has to give back all their money. That's a rule. Congress has the ability to legislate. But once you do that, it's not public in general. The government can't hide behind the Sovereign Acts defense. It's now something that the government is doing, and it's, it's infringing on the contracting ability of the government, and the government would just simply owe the contractor money for that. Um, there's many types of public and general rules. And in fact, I would say the case law over the past 170 years, most things are generally found to be public in general. So any types of facility closures relating to quarantines, or facility closures relating to security concerns, you know, most executive orders that are generally applicable to anyone, everyone, anything where you're not singling out specific contractors, specific people, or or just a couple contractors, maybe in a in a you know duopoly or a niche industry, um, it's going to generally be public in general. There are some exceptions though. Um, the exceptions are generally where the government um, makes a rule that, while yes, it is public in general it has more than an incidental impact on the contractor. And typically the way that that's framed is that the government's rule, sure, it, it has a public in general aspect to it, but it's really infringing on kind of its contractual self-interest. So the government, when it makes rules that lessen its liability to contractors, 
And that seems to be the general thrust of the rule that it's not just for public welfare, it's to save taxpayer money. All of a sudden you get into a place where it, you're, you're more in the realm of a self-interest general and public rule that ceases to be um, something the government can invoke for the sovereign acts. And once you get those self-interested rules, like the you know cases that have come before, you get these self-interested rules where the government is saying, we didn't intend to be paying these types of things, and it's not in the taxpayer's interest to do that. And so here forth, all contractors across the industry, um, no one has to pay, you know, government won't pay any more costs. Those are the kind of self-interested rules that while general and public, um, the government loses its right to invoke the, uh, the, um, the sovereign acts doctrine. The most common example um, uh, of this and the, the most, the clearest and, and, and most persuasive case is a Supreme Court case called Windstar. Um, you know, there's, there's industries that are, that are getting heavily regulated. The regulatory body changed the regulation in order so the government no longer has to pay the cost of, of goodwill. That had really been one of the benefits of the bargain. The court in, in Windstar said, yeah, sure. I mean, it's a general rule. It applies to everyone in the industry, but that doesn't mean that it's not self-interested. Here, the impacts on the contractor weren't just incidental. It's not like, you know, September 11th, I close a base. Sure, you're impacted, but that's just incidental to what I was trying to achieve. Here, the whole purpose was really to impact the contractors so the taxpayers pay less money. That's really the first prong is it has to be public in general and not delving into the self-interest. Where is that line drawn? It's never really clear. It's a case-by-case -case basis. And so, you know, we'd have to have an analysis of what the rule was. Um, the second important rule before we get to these new COVID cases is that it had to render the government's contract performance impossible. Um, and that's really complicated. Again, it's case-by-case -case specific. You try and look at what were the supervening events that made performance impractical, um, that what were the, you know, non-occurrence of these events, and, and so you really get into situations of, you know, who assumed the risk of this contractual performance? And, and was the government able to do workarounds? Were they not? How, how did this get realized? One example, I guess, that we could get into is situations where the government's not going to have the right to invoke it under the second prong, that performance is impossible, is basically, you know, where they're warranting something in the contract. So the contract very clearly says, you know, you shall have access to this base gate. Then the courts will say the performance here was impossible, but the government really contracted and allowed the contractor the right to charge these costs. So even though it is a sovereign act, sure, the contract gave those costs, allocated those costs to the contractor, and so you still are liable for those. Uh, the government's still liable for those. Um, there's a really interesting case, um, Raytheon STX, out of the uh, Civilian Board of Contract Appeals that said in an interesting case that where you have a cost type contract, um, certain general clauses of, you know, you can access government facilities that maybe wouldn't rise to the level of the full warrants that thou shalt have the right to do this and I'll pay you if there's a sovereign act. If you have just general rights of facility access and it's a cost type contract, then the contractor can get paid under the sovereign acts doctrine even if you would have something else that would typically be like a sovereign act, like a September 11th or COVID or wars or shutdowns of whatever kind. There's a lot of interesting examples and we have many more that we can get into. Those are some of the most common ones, just you know, basically availability and access. Let's get to the COVID cases because I think that that's what we, we, we wanna talk about now. So what's interesting is you know, March, 2020, COVID hits. 
we're just now starting to see the the cases coming to fruition of you know the litigation that started probably two years ago. We're now getting our first decisions. You know, right at the outset of COVID, the government was taking a hardline position of maybe saying that sovereign acts would apply. Then the FAR Council and DOD they backed off. Congress passed the CARES Act. Things softened in the industry. There was a discretionary basis for the government to potentially share in the risk to help the defense industrial base, to help the general contracting base. But that's all in the government's discretion, CARES Act and everything. There was no contractual right to that money. And so certain contractors still filed claims saying that there was some contractual right. That brings us to these cases. The first one, and both are pretty quick and easy. The first one is J.E. Dunn Construction. It's an April 2022 case. Essentially, it's a firm fixed price construction contract at an army base in New York. New York had a two-week quarantine period for out-of-state visitors. The base, the, the Army Fort, implemented the same two-week quarantine restriction for all visitors. Contractor personnel of J.D. Dunn traveled to Florida, traveled to other states. They came back. They had to quarantine for 14 days. Contractors paying salaries, so the contractors incur in costs, but they're losing that 14 days of productive time of their employees. The state of New York then lessened it to three days plus a negative test. The government, the, the base, kept a 14-day requirement. The contractor didn't attempt to get a negative test before the 14 days, which is an interesting fact that was somewhat material to the decision. Essentially, the court looked at, you know, was the government's shutting down of the facility and the quarantine restriction for 14 days, was that a public and general act? Yes. They said it applied to all visitors. It wasn't targeting one company. It applied to anyone visiting the base. You had a 14-day quarantine if you had traveled out of state or even just beyond, I think, 350 miles in this case. Um, and they found that it wasn't self-interested in any way. The government wasn't uh, imposing the quarantine restriction in order to avoid costs. If anything, maybe it hampered the government's ability to perform and get the services that they wanted. It was really just public health, safety, and welfare. Turning to the, the second part of the test, though, they said that the, the new rule did render the government's performance, and here the performance is allowing base access. The government has the obligation to perform, to allow base access. They said the new rule made it impractical. For 14 days, they had the contracting officer, the government in its contracting capacity, had to abide by the rule of the government in its sovereign capacity, the base commander, and you had to allow people for 14 days to not access the base. So makes sense. The interesting wrinkle in this case is that the, the board, the ASBCA, found that you know even if the, the Army didn't have, the Army Corps didn't have the quarantine restrictions, the contractor still couldn't recover because they would have had to abide by the New York state quarantine restrictions. And sovereign acts doctrine is a U.S. government act uh, and doctrine. It doesn't apply to state action. Um, so you would still, contractor would still be on the hook for abiding by the New York 14 days. And they said, even if we were to consider the New York's revised three-day requirement, it would be incumbent on the contractor to have some sort of a test that they tested negative for COVID after three days to get those days in between three and 14, and they didn't have that evidence, but there's, they, they leave a little wrinkle there. Peter, the next case, um, and the, the last case is Aptim Federal Services, also an April 2022 case from the ASBCA. Very similar facts, firm fixed price contract, Arnold Air Force Base, the commander closed the base to all non-essential personnel. The holding, very similar. Uh, COVID shutdown was a public and general act applied to everyone. It wasn't targeting and it wasn't self-interested. A much more interesting analysis on the impossibility angle. Um, and really, I think the neat wrinkle here is that it was the same agency, you know, so you didn't have this New York state action. It's really the same agency, the base commander, shutting it down 
and then the person who works for the base commander or under the base commander, the contracting officer, abiding by it, they went into a little bit more of an interesting analysis of whether those two hats were really separate or they were could be fused together. The court said, the board said, no, they really are separate. The, the contracting officer you know, doesn't work for the base commander in that sense. The base commander is the sovereign. The contracting officer is the contracting officer. The contracting officer has to abide by it. It was a basic assumption of the contract that while, of course, the government can make changes, it was an assumption that people would have access to the base. This changed it. That made performance impossible. And there was nothing in the contract that shifted these risks to the government. And so the contractor was liable, especially also because it's a firm fixed price contract. So that kind of rounds out those two cases that really, I think, follow um, everything that we've learned about you know, why the Sovereign Act applies the way it does. Sky, that's an incredibly helpful background and overview. Can you spend a couple minutes talking about lessons learned, potential workarounds, solutions, things that contractors should be thinking about um, in light of the doctrine in these cases? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one key lesson that jumps off is the type of contract you have matters. So, you know, there's case law that on a cost type contract where the government is reimbursing costs, the fundamental thing that sinks contractors on all these firm fixed price contracts is on a firm fixed price contract, the price is fixed. The contractor is liable for the risks of unanticipated events. And so you have something like COVID or 9-11 or wars, generally the contractor is going to be liable unless there's some clause that, that shifts that risk or, or gives a warrant. On a cost type, it's a little different. The Raytheon STX is the best kind of case that we have on that. But there's an opening for more arguments to be made that the government really does bear the risk, the cost risk of the contractor's costs, even during these, you know, what would maybe otherwise be non-compensable or excusable delays. The second really, you know, learning point and, you know, best practice for contractors is always, even if you don't know precisely what you're going to be entitled to, always timely reserve your rights by email in writing to the contracting officer, even if it's just CCing the contracting officer. Just, it doesn't matter that you have everything locked down with precision, timely reserve your rights, you know, within 20, 30 days, 20 days is best. Um, of, of we are experiencing some COVID-related issue, whether it's quarantine, whether it's supply chain, whether it's international logistics, you know, lack of shipping, whatever it is, always timely reserve your rights in writing to the contracting officer. It doesn't matter if the government's going to argue it's compensable. Once lawyers start looking more carefully at the contract, we might be able to find ways that there is an express or implied warrant in that contract such that you can get one of the exceptions. And even if there's a sovereign act, the warrant applied can shift those cost risks to the government. Also, we can look, you know, once we go looking through it, we can find some connection that maybe isn't initially apparent between something that's a CO action or inaction that really exceeds what was required by the, by the Sovereign Act. And that's a really interesting exception to the rule, which is if you have a rule that a sovereign makes, let's say you have to quarantine for 14 days and the government imposes that rule, the CO says, my hands are tied, um, we have to quarantine indefinitely. And the indefinite decision is not necessarily on a one-to-one -one with what the, is required of the 14 days, just as an example. And if your suspension, if your quarantining goes past 14 days, now the contracting officer has exceeded what was required. And this is a, a really clear, easy, it's quantitative. If 15 days is more than 14 days, but there's a lot of ways that's really qualitative and maybe tricky and there's a lot of gray areas, but any action or inaction of the government that somehow exceeds what is necessarily required by the strict rule of what the sovereign did gives us an our opportunity to argue a constructive change by the government. And then that is clearly compensable or a, a compensable delay by the government, which is compensable. 
Um, and at the very worst, timely reserving your rights by email to the contracting officer always is going to get you the contracting officer at least excusable delays, not compensable, excusable delays. You'll get extra time. Um, that extra time can have importance, gives you more time to perform, and it can certainly have monetary connections. For example, if you have milestones or incentive milestones in your contract, then giving you extra time gives you more time to hit those incentives. And so that can have kind of indirectly a monetary um, impact. So those are the, the real lessons learned. Again, you know, what type of contract you have is matters. And always, even if you're not precisely sure what you're entitled to, timely reserve your rights in writing to the contracting officer. Perfect. Well, this was been a very helpful overview, Sky. Lots to think about and talk about. Thank you for the insight and analysis. And with that, we will close out. This has been the Fastest Five Minutes brought to you by Kroll and Mooring. See you again in two weeks. If you have any questions, I can be reached at 202-624-2807. And Sky can be reached at 202-624-2606. Thanks so much for joining. The Fastest Five Minutes podcast is brought to you by Kroll and Mori LLP. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy our show, please leave us a review. You can find more information at kroll.com slash govconpodcast. Podcast.